This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart, and I'm very forgiving, but, like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Ah, clothes. Well-designed pieces of material and functional doohickeys made to protect our fragile parts and safeguard our moral decency. Wear clothes, shield your body from the many threats of our environment and the judgmental eyes of fellow humans. Pretty simple concept, right? Yeah, no. The history of clothing and fashion is fraught with ideas about gender, status, and appropriateness— Different cultures around the world have different styles of dress and different rules around the way they dress. That's always been the case, based on geography, access to resources, and tradition, among other factors. What someone wears and what someone thinks about what someone wears can have layers of meaning. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and this is Unpopular a podcast about the people in history who did not let the threat of persecution keep them from speaking truth to power. Quite frankly, I've become sick of American conversations around what's right and what's wrong when it comes to clothing. Not because I think we shouldn't be having these conversations. They often question our ideas about sexuality, patriarchy, gender identity, body types, cultural appropriation— sexism, ableism, so on and so forth. I'm just tired of seeing how after all these years of back and forth over clothing, we still have our panties in a bunch and are persecuting and denigrating people over something as harmless as fabric. Bickering over clothing choices just seems like such a waste of our precious energy. Idealistic me wishes clothing weren't so politicized so that we didn't have to worry about it affecting our ability to be accepted, to avoid attack, or even to live. It would seem that one's right to bodily autonomy and safe self-expression would be something we'd have settled on by now. Alas, clothing choices and trends can still be the focus of controversial discussions— Ones around what people should and shouldn't wear based on how flattering it is, whether a woman's clothes make her more susceptible to sexual assault, how school dress codes are sexist and body shaming, 
It is at the center of a controversy. A straight-A high school student says this outfit got her suspended for two weeks, and now she won't be able to graduate despite having multiple scholarship offers. Which clothes men shouldn't wear? In my world, of course, it don't matter. You know, you could be a gangster with a good dress, <laughs> or you could be a gangster with baggy pants. It don't. I feel like it's no such thing as gender. Whether leggings should be worn as pants. We have brought in an esteemed panel of fathers right here to see if they would allow their daughters to wear leggings to school. We basically have a rule in the Idala household. If it's not worn in the monastery, it's not worn out on the street by the Idala. Who can and can't be braless in public? Should a bra be mandatory for young women in schools? That's an issue that's exploding at this all-girl private school in Montreal after one of them was told to cover up when she wasn't wearing a bra. One study even suggested that nonconformity in clothing can signal a person's high status, a phenomenon the study authors called the red sneakers effect. It's disheartening to see how self-limiting we can be with something that can be so much fun because of arbitrary standards. How have we not loosened our collective collars on this issue yet? Of course, part of the reason I feel this way is because I, like many others, have had my personal battles with clothes and culture. I regret to remember the times I was forced to wear pantyhose or panty loafers to my black Southern Baptist church, where being the weird dressing kid just wasn't going to work. I get that there are accepted conventions of dress, we are expected to adhere to when we're in certain spaces. Those are deep-rooted, and there's no way we're ripping those out of the ground anytime soon. And there are plenty of other people who face clothing-related challenges that are specific to their cultural group or practice. Clothing serves a lot of purposes, not limited to just function and adornment. So it really doesn't matter that I'm jaded when it comes to cultural conversations about clothing. As long as clothing reflects larger societal norms, expectations, and evolution, then we have no choice but to recognize the issues that clothing illustrates so tangibly. So we're going to go back in American history when stuffy and cumbersome were appropriate descriptors for the clothing of middle and upper class white people. Women's clothing was highly impractical and in the case of corsets, even dangerous to one's health. So some women decided they would advocate for more rational dress. Two of those women who worked for dress reform were Elizabeth Smith Miller and Amelia Bloomer. Now, let me pause here to emphasize the fact that dress reform mainly affected people who had class and monetary privilege. This was the mid-1800s, when slavery and its effects were still part of American life. So when looking at the issue of dress reform, we have to put it into perspective. There were absolutely bigger fish to fry than high-class women's corsets being too tight and skirts being too wide. That isn't up for debate. In fact, many of the women involved in dress reform were also first-wave feminists, and they realized that even within their social groups, there were other issues they found more pressing that they would rather focus on. And wearing comfortable clothing rather than ostentatious, uncomfortable yet fashionable clothing was definitely not a fight working-class folks, impoverished people, and slaves were worried about. For many people, 
Worries about clothes entailed having clothes to wear at all. And all of that's not to mention the long history of people bucking dress norms on a singular scale to do things like escape slavery and get jobs or better wages. If we're being straight up, dress reform was not the most pressing issue of the day, and it was not the most noble movement out of all of them. On top of that, progress in dress reform could belie other societal problems around gender and the body. That said, that doesn't mean it wasn't important. It is totally possible for more than one issue to be addressed at a time in a country, and those issues may have varying degrees of gravity and urgency. Dress reform was intertwined with the movement for women's rights, and as a matter of gender inequity, it managed to raise awareness about the relevance of women's clothing that was more practical and less restrictive, socially and physically. Elizabeth Smith Miller and Amelia Bloomer were both activists outside of dress reform, but their willingness to adopt unaccepted clothing at the risk of being rejected in the hopes of introducing more sensible dress was admirable. If a problem exists, no matter how small, there's potential that it can be solved. Amelia and Elizabeth chose to work on the issue of dress reform for several years of their lives, and they were often ridiculed for it. Though dress reform didn't fully take off due to their efforts, and fashion didn't meaningfully change until decades later, they recognized the need for progress and were kind of ahead of their time. After this break, we'll dig into exactly what Elizabeth and Amelia were up against. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reserved was something many upper and middle class women in mid-19th century America were not when it came to clothing. Contemporary custom called for dramatic, floor-length dresses. Women sauntered around in literally breathtaking corsets and heavy skirts filled out with several petticoats. So their top half looked like a Coke bottle and their bottom half looked like a lampshade. The stiff petticoats could weigh up to 15 pounds. As someone who couldn't step foot in a stiletto and generally finds tight clothing a hassle, if not insufferable, I couldn't imagine being so burdened by such excess. But they endured for the sake of modesty, decorum, and keeping up with the sensibilities of the time. And when I say endured, I'm not just talking about the discomfort these women experienced. These dresses affected the way they interacted with their environments and caused actual health complications. Women overheated, had trouble breathing, tripped over stairs, had their organs crushed, swept up the garbage on city streets with their skirts, and got caught in carriage wheels and factory machines, and even caught fire due to their huge crinolines. Crinolines were stiff skirts, or underskirts, also known as hoop skirts. It would be slapstick comedy if it weren't actually hurting real women, but a lot of people including people who didn't wear the unwieldy outfits, realized just how absurd dealing with all of this was. Cartoons, often made by men, mind you, poked fun at the size of women's skirts. In a double hit to the anti-garroting phenomenon and the crinoline craze, one illustration from an 1856 issue of Punch, for instance, shows a seedy-looking guy narrowly missing his opportunity to strangle a guy in a top hat. The caption reads, Mr. Trumbull borrows a hint from his wife's crinoline and invents what he calls his patent anti-Garrett overcoat, which places him completely out of harm's reach in his walk home from the city. In this way, the constraints these outfits set on women's movement and the detriment they had on women's health were symbolic of women's confinement to ideals of vanity and domesticity. Not all women had it out for corsets and ever-growing petticoats. Some upheld the exaggerated shapes as models of femininity and sophistication and crucial parts of their beauty and health regimen. Regardless, a vocal group of women involved in the temperance, suffrage, health reform, and women's rights movements took up the cause of transforming women's clothing that involved less calculated risk and more comfort. Elizabeth Smith Miller was the daughter of abolitionists 
and Carol Fitzhugh and Garrett Smith. They were a wealthy family, and Elizabeth spent a lot of time in huge houses and engaged in what she called rousing arguments at Peterborough that made social life seem tame and profitless elsewhere. The Smith's home in Peterborough, New York, was a station on the Underground Railroad, so Elizabeth sometimes conversed with people who were attempting to escape slavery. Being in this environment influenced Elizabeth's perspective and in part inspired her social advocacy, and she donated time and money to the movements for suffrage and women's rights. At the same time, Amelia Bloomer was taking on social issues important to her. She wrote articles about temperance or abstaining from drinking alcohol and joined temperance organizations. She went to the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls in 1848, though she was still pretty conservative at the time and her views didn't completely align with the sentiments of the meeting. And in 1849, she started the newspaper, The Lily. When the newspaper started out, it was focused on temperance and created for distribution among women in the Seneca Falls Ladies Temperance Society. Amelia thought that writing was more appropriate for women to voice their ideas, as opposed to speeches. She said about women in temperance in the first issue, Surely she may, without throwing aside the modest refinements which so much become her sex, use her influence to lead her fellow mortals from the destroyer's path. But soon, the newspaper began including articles on other subjects. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a suffragist and activist who was also Elizabeth Smith Miller's cousin, began writing pieces for the paper on childbearing, education, and later women's rights. Stanton's calls for changes to the way women were treated helped motivate Amelia to become involved in the movement. Amelia advocated for women in other ways, but she's best known for her role in dress reform. After going back and forth with a Seneca County Courier editor who had proposed that women wear pants because their dresses were a nuisance and harmful to their health, she grew partial to the idea of donning a new suit. Amelia began to support wearing more functional attire, which consisted of a dress that came just below the knee, a loose bodice or none at all, and a pair of trousers that gathered at the ankle. In an article in the Chicago Tribune, she recounted her journey to adopting the costume. She said, About this time, Elizabeth Smith Miller, daughter of Congressman Garrett Smith, appeared on the streets of our village dressed in short skirts and full Turkish trousers. She came on a visit to her cousin, Elizabeth Katie Stanton, who was then a resident of Seneca Falls. Mrs. Miller had been wearing the costume some two or three months at home and abroad. Just how she came to adopt it, I have forgotten, if I ever knew. Amelia saw Elizabeth Cady Stanton wearing the short skirt and satin trousers get up, too. And Amelia figured she would walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So she started wearing the bloomer suit, as it would become known, and announced the switch to readers of The Lily. She wasn't the first person in the world or even the U.S. to wear that style of clothing. People in water cure sanatoriums and in religious and utopian groups in the early 19th century dressed similarly. And uppity European and American women wore similar pantalettes since the 1700s. Miller's trousers resembled those that women wore in the Middle East, Central Asia, and the Oneida tribe. It's not clear exactly how Miller came up with her design, but there's a good chance she pulled from examples in utopian communities or sanatoriums. 
But this time, unlike many other instances, women's donning of the bloomer suit was not innocuous. It was a direct challenge to contemporary social conventions, which dictated that wearing trousers in public was for guys only. Amelia argued that women's over-the-top dresses limited their access to physical activities and ensured that women remained subordinate to men. The outfit caught on, and Amelia was amazed at the furor she had caused, as she put it. Bloomer expounded on the benefits of the costume in subsequent issues of The Lily, and women's rights advocates began to believe that removing those layers of oppressive clothes was an important part of their effort to reject the confines of a male-dominated society. Women began sending letters to Amelia, asking her for patterns to make the outfit. The Lily's circulation went from 500 a month to 4,000. There were bloomer balls and bloomer festivals, and Amelia began wearing the outfit everywhere, at lectures, at parties, at church, and in the office. Amelia said in The Lily, Those who think we look queer would do well to look back a few years at the time they wore 10 or 15 pounds of petticoat and bustle around the body and balloons on their arms. Then imagine which cut the queerest figure, they or we. Amelia Bloomer got a lot of the credit for wearing the dress and trousers outfit, hence it being named after her. But Amelia has acknowledged Elizabeth Smith Miller as the originator of the style when it came to dress reform in America and England. And she said that if it weren't for Miller, neither she nor Stanton would be traipsing around in the controversial garb anyway. So it wasn't because of Amelia's lack of humility that people rallied around the name Bloomers for the new costume. Anyway, her last name is pretty fitting for those billowy pantaloons. So Bloomers were hot stuff for many people, but not most people. The women who dared to wear pants in public in lieu of dresses that sacrificed health for social decency weren't going to get away with their rebellion that easily. Many women chose not to wear or support the outfit because they found it ridiculous or undignified, because they weren't interested in dress reform, because their families begged them not to, or any other reason. But women who did wear it were subjected to lots of ridicule and criticism. Some people said that bloomer wearers were only homely women trying to get men's attention. Some critics said the bloomer suits erased any trace of appeal or mystery in the women who wore them, which could be destructive to the prospering of American families. Bloomer wearers were accused of trying to become men, inspiring fear in the hearts of people who couldn't stand the thought of any disruption to gender roles. Women were harassed and embarrassed in the streets, often afraid to go out in bloomers due to fear of being scorned or even mobbed for being so bold. An article in the October 6th 1851 issue of the newly founded New York Times described the, quote, dubious reception to the new style in London and made clear the fear of a slippery slope leading to an uprising of liberated women. For if the fair sex emancipate themselves from the tyranny of custom and costume, what may they not do next? One journal hints very ill-naturedly that the new dress is best adapted for a particular class of ladies who, poor things, have a deal of street walking, would find the bloomer costume quite a blessing since its adaptation to outdoor exercise is insisted on as one of its chief recommendations. 
If it be once patronized by the class in question, I need not say it will have no chance with any other. One might, in fact, sooner abridge our liberties than curtail the female petticoats and alter the Constitution more easily than affect a radical change in feminine costume. So, yeah, I need not go through any more insulting comments filled with archaic thought for you to get the picture. Women plus bloomers equals bad, terrifying, and somehow worse than stripping our freedoms. After the break, we'll get into the downfall of the bloomer costume. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and sociopolitical factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We all felt that the dress was drawing attention from what we thought of far greater importance. The question of woman's right to better education, 
to a wider field of employment to better remuneration for her labor and to the ballot for the protection of her rights. In the minds of some people, the short dress and woman's rights were inseparably connected. With us, the dress was but an incident, and we were not willing to sacrifice greater questions to it. Amelia wrote that in the Chicago Tribune article I mentioned earlier. By 1859, she had ditched the costume, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton only wore the bloomer suit for about two or three years after her father and friends convinced her to retire the ensemble. The trend didn't last for even a decade. Bloomer's unpopularity and the derision that brought on the women who wore them discouraged women from wearing the outfit and ultimately led to its fade into relative obscurity, though advocates of health reform did continue to embrace similar costume throughout the 1850s and 60s. So bloomers had fallen by the wayside, but cage crinolines were growing in popularity. Those were lighter, more flexible, and gave women a better range of mobility as compared to the hot and unhygienic layered petticoats of previous years. According to the ladies' newspaper of 1863, So perfect are the wave-like bands that a lady may ascend a steep stair, lean against the table, throw herself into an armchair, pass to her stall at the opera, and occupy a further seat in the carriage without inconveniencing herself or others, and provoking the rude remarks of observers, thus modifying in an important degree all those peculiarities tending to destroy the modesty of English women. And lastly, it allows the dress to fall in graceful folds. Many women, including Bloomer herself, were content with wearing these, and cage crinolines were inexpensive, worn by working class and black women. That meant that they also came to signify women's shifting position in society, and they challenged racial and class hierarchies. A bloomer-like costume did come back decades later as athletic wear. Dress reform continued after the Civil War, and fashion standards eased up in the early 1900s. Miller and Bloomer continued to be active in social movements, but the fervor for bloomers had been relatively short-lived. Clearly, bloomerism and dress reform really scared some people who saw it as a gateway drug to more rights for women. Some women at the time did view dress reform as inextricably linked with the women's rights movement. To them, choosing new dress that anticipated a shift in women's roles, rights, and power was a significant action. But others just saw bloomerism as a byproduct of the real work that needed to be done for women. So dress reform took a back seat. And that's valid. While fashion can be a great visual signifier of social progress, cultural autonomy, and identity, that symbolism can belie real gender, class, and race issues still at play based on who gets to wear the fashion, how and where they wear it, and how they're treated when they do wear it. Even Bloomer was conservative, as she didn't take to the liberal, religious, and abolitionist views many of her peers did. Let me remind you again that this period of dress reform and women's rights activism took place while women who were still enslaved were not concerned about having the freedom to ditch corsets and wear pantaloons in public. 
and that Native Americans were often being forced to give up their traditional dress in favor of European clothes. To this day, conversations around what people wear and what it signifies about their background, ideas, and identity are often contentious, and they can devolve into cultural shaming and public mockery. And he said, why are you wearing that? You know, really in my face, why are you wearing that? Take it off. And then the next thing I realized is grab hold of my scarf from here and just try to remove it. There have been strides in American fashion, like clothes created with religious practices in mind, gender-neutral clothing, clothes that cater to people with disabilities, and clothes created for a wider range of body sizes and types. But clothing choices still invite stigma and judgment, and people are still confined by social norms of dress. Some people are ridiculed for what they wear when they're not even trying to be subversive. So yes, bloomerism did not have an immediate impact in terms of it meaningfully changing women's lives, and it operated in privileged spaces. But Amelia Bloomer and Elizabeth Smith Miller both used clothing as a vehicle to defy the constraints that were part of their lived experiences. And they stepped out on the limb and endured backlash in service of a goal that was bigger than just them. In the end, they showed how a few people's personal descent can galvanize many. And that has the potential to change minds and societies around the world. Andrew Howard is our producer. Holly Fry and Christopher Hasiotis are our executive producers. If you're not already subscribed, you can make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another episode of Unpopular. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.